Psalm 27, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart is not afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, still I am confident. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. For he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock, and then my head will be high above enemies around me. I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this about you. You are to seek my face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Because of my adversaries, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and courageous. Wait for the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for today, and thank you for the gift of your grace today, Lord. Thank you for this gift of being able to come together in worship and to lift our voices together in song and in praise to, to your name, to the glory of your name. And um, we just come to your word now and pray your spirit to help us as we gather around your word again, Lord. We want to see you. We want to see Jesus. We want, to, we want to see you in a fresh way today, God. May our hearts be transformed, Lord, as we come once again um, to your word. Thank you, Lord, for, for all of your, your good gifts. Thank you for the joy of your salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to welcome you. If you're visiting with us, new, you're a guest today. My name is... Russell, and I'm uh, honored to serve as the lead pastor here at Philpott Church, and we're so glad that you are here worshiping with us. This truly is a gift to be able to gather together uh, in worship and to, uh, to just lift up our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are exploring an ancient Christian letter that was written to a church in the ancient city of Philippi. And central to this letter so far has been this imperative. Live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus. In other words, live in a way that demonstrates 
What we believe about Jesus is of greatest worth. And we've come to understand that living lives that are worthy of the gospel is related to to attitudes and actions in the church. And specifically, relationships in the church need to be marked by an others-focused humility. And so as we turn a corner today and move into chapter 3 of this short four-chapter letter, we're reminded of another important theme, and that's the theme of joy. And so let me ask you, what, what gives you joy? Did you wake up this morning and see what was falling and say, I'm excited about that? <laughs> what, what gives you joy? So let's turn, shall we, to Philippians chapter 3, and uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 11. Apostle Paul, this early Christian church planting missionary, writes and says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And to write the same things to you is is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And then he says, "Look look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And again, may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Paul begins by saying, 
finally my, my brothers, my, finally my brothers and sisters. And you know what? We, we might have Paul to blame here for these, um, uh, these false conclusions that are part of a lot of messages, a lot of sermons. You know, pe- preachers say, well, in conclusion, and then it just goes on and on and on for a, 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 long, a long time. If that's kind of what's happening here. You, you, you see this word, finally, and you expect, well, now the letter is about to end, but you realize you're just halfway through. Because, and then a little later on, if you turn over in chapter 4, verse 8, he says what again? Finally. Now, some of you may count how many times I say, in conclusion. Right? And so I'm, I'm on good, solid ground here with the apostle Paul. So take it up with him. Really, uh, really, I suppose what Paul is saying here, you know, we have this translation that says finally, but really, really what he's most likely saying is, you know, as for the rest of what needs to be said. And, and so there, there's some more that needs to be said here, and, and, and this is what's happening. So if you're tracking with us in this sermon series, you'll, you'll notice a shift in this letter. And chapter 3 opens with Paul moving on to the rest of what he feels needs to be said. And he begins with a call to rejoice and also a warning of some potential trouble. So let's talk about the call to rejoice first. Now, joy is a central theme in Philippians. I'm not sure if you're able to, 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 to follow that through there, but if you go through quickly through Philippians, you'll, you'll notice how joy is a prominent theme. Paul prays with joy. He rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. Uh, Paul will remain living on earth for the Philippians' joy in the faith. He asks the Philippians to complete his joy. Paul is glad and rejoices with the Philippians. He sends Epaphroditus that the Philippians might rejoice. He tells the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus with joy. He tells the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. He tells the Philippians that they are his joy. Later on, he, says the, he tells the Philippians twice to rejoice in the Lord. And then Paul says to read, he, that he rejoiced in the Lord at the Philippians' concern for him. And so throughout this letter, there is this dominant theme of joy. And that's how Paul begins this passage today, rejoice in the Lord. He'll repeat this command later in chapter 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. And so I want us to understand that Paul's phrase here speaks to the source and direction of Christian joy. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of books that have been written about joy and a lot of how-to books. You know, here's how to experience joy or seven steps to having a joyful life. And there, there's this tension, right? Because joy is this universal desire, but it's often so elusive, And so the source and direction of Christian joy, Paul says, is is Jesus. It's our Lord who saves. And what this means is that such joy, joy in our Lord who saves, this joy is independent of adverse circumstances. This profound gospel truth is the reason why we can experience joy in 
the middle of difficult circumstances. And we should know that this kind of joy is not, it's not some superficial joy or what we might call happy face joy. Right? You know, it's the kind of joy that you think, you know, you have to always put on this kind of superficial Christian smile because you, you expect that people expect that you're, you're happy and always joyful. But that's not what's happening here. You know, it's like, who's ever taken a family photograph? Maybe Christmas time. We, we've done this as, as a family. And, you know, you go somewhere. And a lot of times we used to try to do this on our own. And you use the self-timer, all this, all this jazz. And so, you know, you're, you're, and people look at the final product and say, man, what a happy family. But if you could only have been there in the process. I remember one year, you know, we, we tried this. Angela, we, we had a, a chocolate lab. And Angela wanted to have the dog in the picture. Man, what Christmas joy that was. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was a task. You know, just trying to get, you know, you, not only did you have to have everyone smiling in the right way, but then there was the dog. And you, you'd run back and look at the pictures. Oh, no, the dog is looking the wrong way. And then, then I'm looking the wrong way. And then Noah's grumpy. And, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just the way. To, but when you look at the picture, you say, oh, boy, everyone is just so happy. That's not the the joy that Paul is is talking about here. Christian joy, friends. Christian joy is a gift from God. (laughs) It's a good feeling in our soul because of our union with Christ. Christian joy is rooted in our experience of the gospel. And that's why it's independent of difficult circumstances. I love what John Piper says when he says that Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. It's what what God does in, in the lives of believers. And so it seems that Paul has two concerns for the Philippians in this letter. That, that their love for one another increases as they learn in humility to treat the needs of others more important than their own. And secondly, that they learn to rejoice in the Lord even as they suffer. And so along with this call to rejoice, there's, there's a warning here in the front end of this passage. There may be something troubling on the horizon for this church. And the nature of the warning is, is difficult for us to appreciate given the distance between us and, and, the, and, and the context. We have, we have these curious verses in, in, in verses 2 and 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And, Again, a lot of this can be lost in, in translation. For example, those of you, again, who, 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 who like dogs may not appreciate Paul's choice of words here. But, but if we remind ourselves, again, that Paul lived in a different context and that, you know, dogs weren't viewed as cute household pets, but instead were mostly street animals and, and scavengers, and you understand that Paul, Paul's usage here. But at the heart at the heart of this warning, 
is, is a group known as Judaizers who, at the time of the early church, were insisting that Gentile converts, non-Jewish converts, must adopt forms of Judaism in order to become Christians. Or we might say that they insisted that converts had to become Jews before becoming Christians. This was a problem that uh, Paul dealt with a few years prior in the region of Galatia. Again, primarily Jewish Christians, and Paul himself was a Jewish Christian. But unlike Paul, other, some Jewish Christians were suggesting that non-Jewish converts to Christianity had only come halfway and that they needed to take on aspects of Jewish law as well. Now, please don't misunderstand this as to be an attack on Judaism. This is not an attack on Judaism. This is not an attack on Jewish practice. This is Paul confronting a group who were insisting that, 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 that converts to Christianity had to go through some extra hoops. That there were, there, were, there were requirements being added to these converts in order for them to become uh, members of, of, of the church. And so Paul warns that this problem may be on the horizon for the Philippians. And while Paul uses rhetoric that is probably impossible to capture in English, we should note that Paul is being quite forceful because really at issue is the essence of Christianity. And so chapter 3 begins with a call to rejoice and then a warning, and we, we should keep both of these in, in view as we consider then what Paul writes next. And I think the central question Paul is dealing with is this. What does it mean to be a Christian? Or how does one become a Christian? How, how do you know if you are a Christian? The short answer for Paul is that you need God's righteousness. So what does Paul mean by that? Well, the language of righteousness here refers to being in a, a right relationship with God. Righteousness here means to be in a condition that is acceptable to God. And so the implication is that we are, we are not inherently in a right relationship with God. The book of Romans, for example, says that, that none of us are righteous. And so only righteous people will live forever in God's new world, and yet none of us are righteous. And what stands between us and a right relationship with God is, is our sin. The writer of Romans says that all have sinned and we've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. It's been said that sin is any feeling or thought or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all things. A heart that prefers anything above God. And so we are sinners by nature and by choice. We're, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And so there's a sense that the progressive revelation of the Bible is, is the unveiling of God's plan to deal with sin. 
So I'm submitting that the central question of this text is, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or framed another way, how does God deal with our sin, the sin that severs our relationship with God? And in our text, there is contrasted two kinds of righteousness, two ways of being made right with God. There is God's righteousness, which will return to in a moment, but there's another kind. And in verse 3, Paul talks about a righteousness that is rooted in confidence in one's effort. It's a confidence in the flesh. In verse 8, Paul talks about his pers- a personal righteousness, or, or as he says, a righteousness of my own that comes from obeying the law, from obeying the moral code. And so the question is, what will enable you and I to stand before God and receive his grace instead of judgment? Now remember that Paul is warning the Philippians that of a potential danger on the horizon. A group will insist that Gentile converts to Christianity must also adopt forms of Judaism in order to become Christians. And so you'll note that Paul kind of tells his own story. Now I don't know when's the last time you uh, wrote or updated your resume. Uh, for those of you who may be in, in the process maybe of trying to find employment, maybe you've been looking at your resume lately. And that's how a lot of people kind of approach, approach God. They, 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 listen, they have a resume of things that they want to they give, give to God as, as a means by which they'll be accepted, acceptable to him. I mean, look at Paul's impeccable credentials in verses 4 and 6. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh... He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in in the flesh, I have more. And then he lists off his impeccable credentials. And again, the force of what Paul is saying here kind of gets lost in translation to the modern reader. But we might summarize by saying that when it comes to you being accepted by, by, by a holy God, your nationality doesn't matter Your rituals don't matter. Your education doesn't matter. As one commentator writes, don't put your confidence in a ritual. Don't put your confidence in your ethnicity. Don't put your confidence in your rank or in in keeping a tradition. Don't put your confidence in your rule keeping or your zeal or your obedience to, to a moral code. All these things speak to how we try to earn our acceptance before God. And Paul had, Paul had an impressive resume. In fact, when it comes to personal accomplishments or religiosity, he, he's in a category all by himself. But the point he's making is that despite all of his effort and his inherited pedigree, there was no confidence that this could bring him into a right relationship with God. It, it came up short because something else is needed. We, we might call this kind of righteousness that, that Paul is talking about uh, behavioral righteousness. 
And we so often link a right standing before God with, with behavior. We, we think in terms of earning a right standing with God by being a, a moral person. Behavioral righteousness is focused on what we have done, what we do to earn God's acceptance. This comes out in, in conversations with people all the time. Maybe you can think of conversations with, with people and, and this kind of thinking comes out. Even over, over the, the Christmas break, uh, we, were, we were in conversations in a, in a group of people and, and a conversation turned to, well, what, what do I do? And, and that led to, you know, a pastor and what church? And then that led into a discussion about religion in general. And, and it, I think it came up that my, my sister's a Salvation Army officer and then someone someone said oh those people those you know the salvation army people and, and i come from a salvation army background and and they're they're wonderful people all the good that they do if any people are going to be in heaven it's going to be those people right all, all good but again it, it's that it's that mentality right that they're they're linking what someone does with being accepted before God. They're, 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 linking, they're linking effort and good works with somehow that earning special status with God. A lot of people think that, you know, there's this cosmic scale, you know, that God has. And, and at the end of the day, you know what, if, if all of your, if your, the good deeds that you've done in life, if that somehow outweighs the bad deeds, then yeah, you'll, you'll gain entrance into, into heaven. The, the common thought among people is that it's, 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 it's up to me, that I have to earn this. That, that God, is, God is out there, I'm here, and I have to, I have to find my way to God. And I have to strive, and I... And I have to earn, and I've, and I've got to do all the right things. And, and when, I, when I don't do the right things, I, I, I just, my, my obedience then is based upon guilt and fear to try to do better because I've got to earn, I've got to earn his acceptance. And into this, into this striving, and into this earning, and into this fear-based obedience comes some really, really good news. It's the good news of a better way. And we call this news the good news of the gospel because we need another kind of righteousness in order to be a Christian. We need another kind of righteousness in order to be saved. We need, as Paul says, God's righteousness. To be a Christian means that we need the righteousness from God, not the righteousness of our own that comes from observing certain laws or a moral code. And, and so what are you trusting in for salvation? What are the things that you are trusting in to earn a, a, a standing with God? What have you based your relationship with God on? Paul was about to discover that he had everything except everything that he needed. And all of his accomplishments. 
accomplishments and his pedigree. It wasn't enough. He needed another kind of righteousness. And Paul describes God's righteousness as the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a righteousness that depends on on personal faith in Jesus. And so if a person does not have Christ, they, they they have nothing. So the great Apostle Paul, despite despite his credentials, needed the righteousness of someone else, namely Jesus. It's the righteousness that comes from faith in Jesus that brings us into a right standing with God. Listen again to Paul on verses 8 and 9. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not trusting in a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And this is the good news of the gospel. That through God's righteousness, we are brought into a new and eternally right relationship with him. God's righteousness is the only righteousness we can have confidence in. And there are some things about this righteousness that we need to understand. In contrast to to the performance-based plan, God's righteousness is a saving righteousness rooted in the sacrificial life and death of Jesus. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now think about that. Here is this amazing exchange that Jesus receives our punishment, though he never sinned, and we receive his righteousness, though we didn't deserve it. This is the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Jesus, that Jesus died to be my substitute and pay the penalty of death for my sin. And so all of my sin goes on Jesus And all of his perfection is given to me. (laughs) My condemnation goes on Jesus. And his salvation comes to me. My separation from God goes on Jesus. And his reconciliation with God is given to me. And Jesus forgives me and gives me new life. And forgives me all of my sins. And none of it has anything to do based on what I have done. And the result is now that we are are found in Christ. By faith in Christ, it, it is as though we never sinned. But more, it's as though we always obeyed. That that's that's Christ's work in us. We we have been declared to be righteous. Because of Jesus. And so God's righteousness is a saving righteousness based upon the sacrificial life and death of Jesus. We also need to understand that this saving righteousness, Paul says, it's from God himself. And so this saving righteousness comes from God. 
need to remember this. God is the author. He's the one who initiates. He's the one who provides. And so it's a reminder that this saving righteousness comes from God. It does not originate in human effort. This salvation doesn't come from within. It, it, it comes from God. God's righteousness is a saving righteousness rooted in Jesus' sacrificial life and death. God's saving righteousness is from God. And then we remember that it is received by faith. God's saving righteousness is the free gift of God there's no human effort. There's no earning involved. It is offered to us by God entirely by grace and received by faith, by personal trust and belief in the saving work of Jesus. What's our response? Our response is our faith grateful, joyful acceptance of God's saving righteousness. Our faith in God's righteousness is the denial of all self-achieved righteousness. Again, verse 9, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And so we can affirm again this morning together that this saving righteousness is by, is by grace alone. And it's through, it's through faith alone in, in Christ alone. And what this means is that we have a new position. We are no longer outside of God striving to get to God or seeking to earn favor with God. We are no longer on the outside looking in, but the gift of God's righteousness is that we have a new position of being in Christ. We have confidence and assurance rooted in God's complete salvation. And what we need to understand is that our new position now determines our aim in life. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Listen to Paul in verse 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so this, this theme of righteousness gives way to knowing Christ. And the former exists primarily as the grounds for the latter. That through faith in God's saving righteousness, I now have a new desire to know Christ more and more. Th this language, to know Christ, this is the, this is the language of intimacy and, and, and devotion. To know Christ means to know him personally and relationally. It was A.W. Tozer who said, to have found God and still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. To know Christ. I mean, this is the language of a heart that already knows Christ. Paul has traded self-righteousness for God's perfect saving righteousness through faith in Christ, which has created a new aim, an ever-deepening ever-widening, growing knowledge 
of Jesus. And now we circle back and say, yeah, that this call to rejoice in the Lord becomes that much more meaningful for there is in Jesus this ocean of glory in Christ for us to know and experience. And even in the difficult times of our lives, there's this ocean of glory for us to explore the depth of the grace and mercy of what God has done to save us. We who were lost and unable to find our way to God, that we who were lost and unable through all of the good that we ever could have done earn this, this, this saving relationship with God, that God took the initiative and by grace comes to us and offers us his saving righteousness. And what we do by faith is respond and say, yes, Jesus, I believe and I trust in what you have done to save me. Jesse and, and worship team, come on back. And this might be my one and only conclusion. As we stand amazed that Jesus would save us, we see the depth of his sacrifice and we are spurred to respond in action and love for his sake. And so what is it we're called to do today? Uh, quite simply, we're called to trust in Jesus. It's what we're called to do. Every one of us today is called to, to trust in Jesus. Maybe we're, we're caused to, to look at the things in our lives that we've been putting our trust in and, and, and now God by his spirit comes to us and says, no, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus' work. And, and, and if in this moment you are coming to see the beauty of the gospel, it, God is, is moving toward you with, with salvation. Maybe you've come to this uh, church this morning and you've, you've, you've come in, in here and, and you would say, well, I, I, I'm not really a Christian. I, I, I haven't placed my faith in Christ. And maybe right now there is this inside of you, this newfound beauty that you're seeing now in this message, this, the, the, the beauty of, of, of God saving righteousness. You're seeing beauty in this that you never saw before. What's happening in that moment is that God is coming near you in salvation. I, I, was a, I was just a young, a young kid when this first happened in my life. But I, I remember on this one particular Sunday morning hearing a gospel presentation and unlike any other time, something had stirred in my heart and all of a sudden I just recognized in a way never before my need of God's saving righteousness. My heart was, was, was somehow drawn and warm and I saw in, 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 in a way unlike any other time the beauty of this simple message that God sent his son uh, to die on my behalf and God moved towards me and by faith I responded. And that may be happening to people right here in this room right now. You say, am I a Christian? Well, friends, is your heart stirred by these realities this morning? 
Is your heart being stirred by, by the realities of the beauty of the gospel? The beauty of this, of God's saving righteousness. That though I was lost, that now entirely by God's great gift, I'm now a child of God. Is your heart stirred by that? My counsel, my, my, my admonition to you is to today to believe and to trust right now in the saving work of Jesus. To turn to him and say, yes, Jesus, I believe. I receive you by faith. I trust in you as my personal Lord and Savior. If you have never done that, I encourage you to do it now. And I encourage you to come after we're done and, 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 and find someone. We'll be here at the front to offer prayer for people. Come and talk to us. If, you, you, if you've done that and maybe you don't want to wait, you, you can come on and interrupt me. I don't care. But, but if you've done that for the first time this morning, we invite you to come and find us after and let us know that today for the first time you have seen the beauty of the gospel and you've by faith trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing greater in this world. Yeah, I'm, there's some sort of game happening later on today. I'm joking. I, I, I love it. I'm a big football fan. My team is not in it, but it just takes the pressure off. There, there's, there's a joy in that, but, but it does not compare, friends, to the joy of knowing that my sins are forgiven, that I have been brought into a living relationship with God by all of my striving, all of my effort, all of my looking to all the things that I've done in life, none of it has proves to be, have any meaning. It's all Jesus. It's all grace. It's all God. And now, as a fitting response, people are going to come and serve communion. Come now, would you please? And, you can remain seated, those of you in the congregation, and you will be served this morning by some people as we gather around the table of the Lord, as we remember together his body, his blood. We're going to pray together, and then you're going to be served. Jesse and the team are going to lead us in some singing and just reflect upon the, this is a, a great song he's going to lead us and reflect upon these words and, and, and friends let's just for a few moments it, it's a lot more comfortable in here than outside so we're in no rush right just, just sit and think about the beauty of the gospel today let's pray Lord Jesus thank you for, for your saving work Thank you for this saving righteousness that comes from you. And I pray, I pray that there will be people today who will come to believe for the very first time. And I pray that there will be people who will come to saving faith today. And now, Lord, as we come around your table, we come with thankful hearts for what you have done. The gift of your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Those who are serving, go ahead and start serving, please. And Jesse leads us in song.
grade five and six class to come to the front if you would. They're going to lead us in saying the Apostles' Creed together. Thank you, guys. Let's stand together, shall we? Lord, this morning as we come around your table, we are just reminded of your great gift of salvation. We are thankful, Lord, and today as we share in this communion together, we proclaim your death. We announce again our trust in your saving work. Lord, we're thankful for what you have done to save us, Lord. We hold in our hands things that just remind us of the work that, that has been done to, to save us. Bread and, and juice reminds us of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we share this together, reminding that Jesus is here among us by his spirit. This is the Lord's table. He's our host and so we're reminded today of our unity with Christ. We're also reminded of our unity and love with one another that we share in and through Christ. Let's eat the bread together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's drink the juice. Amen. 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 Friends, leave today in the power of the Spirit, reflecting upon the gift of God's grace. May that direct your aim this week to know Christ more and more and more.
God bless you. For those of you who may want prayer, come and see us at the front. There'll be people here to pray with you and for you. God bless you, everyone. See you for lunch. All right? God bless.